0: Hey, good morning. It's great to see everybody. Hope you all are doing well this morning. Man, I I don't know about you, but I'm still uh, just living off of the joy and the excitement from last week. If you weren't with us last week, we had a chance to celebrate our 90th anniversary here as a church. And it was a wonderful day and a wonderful opportunity for us to celebrate. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I would just like to say as we begin today, just a word of appreciation again for all those that put their hands into making last week very special. Uh, But that really extends to all of you that were here. Um, because the joy that you brought to the moment, both in the service as well as in the fellowship afterwards, was just so tangible and so evident. And I'm so grateful. Thanks, brother. And, and so I'm just grateful for the spirit with which you guys came with your hearts prepared to worship and, and ready just to praise God. And so it was awesome. A couple reminders, though. Uh, we're not done celebrating. Now, we're done with big events. Okay, that was, that was a lot. But we were excited to do it. Um, but we will continue to bring up this milestone through the fall. And make sure that we continue to commemorate this unique season in our church's life. And so just be looking for some more of those uh, reminders as we move forward uh, through the summer and into the fall. I also want to point out that our Guatemala team is back. Raise your hand if you're actually here in church. You sh- yeah, amen. It's awesome. You need to build in a recovery day. I mean, I've done those mission trip things. So y'all continue to pray for a Guatemala team. Find those folks, pull them aside, ask them their stories. Um, it's so hard to put into words what, what God has done when you go on a trip like that, but it's something you come back and you want to share. So pull them aside, ask them to share a little bit with you. Today uh, also marks the beginning of a new series. If you've been with us really through the course of this year, we've been talking about God's promises and what does it look like for us to be a people of God that can truly cling to God's promises. And that's taken us through Genesis and through the first uh, two chapters of Acts. And so last week we kind of uh, transitioned uh, with a final word on Uh, that subject by looking at Acts chapter 2 verse 47 and it fit nicely with our celebration as we talked about what does it mean to praise God, right? Verse 247 talks about praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people in the Lord, adding to their number daily those who are being saved. And so it was just a theme of praise that allowed us to kind of commemorate our 90th anniversary and to also uh, wrap up that series. And that's going to be something that I want us to build on as we head into a new series uh, this summer. Now, we're going to go back to Acts in the fall. We're not done. We're actually just kind of hitting the pause button on it, and we'll go back to it. But over the summer, we're going to take a slightly different approach. And in the month of June, I want to continue to build into this idea, this theme of praise. And what does it truly mean to praise God? We're going to use Psalm 145 as our guide, and we're going to be there over the next few weeks. We're going to have a guest speaker one of these Sundays as well that's going to come in, but also continue with that theme. I'll tell you more about that in the upcoming weeks ahead. Uh, But that's really going to be our focus. And so with that being said... Let me acknowledge for a moment this morning that I know that there are many times that we go through seasons of life where it's just difficult to find the desire to praise. Obstacles that we face, right? Maybe, maybe you come into the sanctuary this morning with some of those obstacles heavy on your heart. You, you come in with a certain uh, grief. Maybe there's a uh, certain stress that you're carrying, certain things that you're worried about. Maybe it's apathy, right? The, the monotony. Um, of life, the mundane rhythm that we often go through. I don't don't know what it is, but I think we can all acknowledge that there are certain seasons that it's just difficult to want to praise. And yet what I love about that last song that Matt and Melanie just introduced is that even in those seasons, guess what? It's not us, it's Christ within us. Right? To to truly come in here and treasure the fact that we have a Savior who has come in and rescued us always gives us a reason to sing and to praise. And so that's what we want to achieve. As we open up His word today we want to make sure that we have our hearts ready to give him the praise that he so richly deserves and so we know the only way to really do that successfully is to to go to him in a spirit of prayer and to ask for his presence to be in our midst and so let's bow our heads and spend some moment praying together father in heaven we do um, give you praise and we thank you for this gospel it keeps drawing us back not just to commemorate anniversaries or to go through uh, weekly services father but to truly offer our lives to you each and every moment, every single day, and to do so, Father, in a way that overcomes these obstacles that we so frequently encounter and allows us to truly just to commit our hearts and our souls and our minds to you and to to no matter the season, say, we're going to praise you and give you the glory, give you the renown that you so richly deserve. And so may that be evident now, Father, as we open up your word and we open up your scripture, Father, would it become living and active once more and change us, and mold us, and inspire us. We thank you for all that you're doing. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 145. We've got a lot to cover this morning, and as we turn to Psalm 145, we're really just going to focus on the first seven verses this morning. That's really going to be where we spend most of our time, but I want to read it in its entirety for this first Sunday, because I want us to hear it From beginning to end and I'm actually going to do a little bit of an overview of Psalm 145 before we get to one particular subject that I want us to focus in on today and so if you can follow along Psalm 145 you see the title there it says a psalm of praise and of David and then we'll pick up in verse 1. I will exalt you my God the King I will praise your name forever and ever every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever great is the Lord Most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. I'll meditate on your wonderful works. They'll tell of the power of your awesome works. And I'll proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness. And joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious. Compassionate. Slow to anger. Rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and You give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him and all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature... Praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen? Amen. So many different things about Psalm 145 that we're going to be tackling over the next couple of weeks. Let me provide a little bit of an introduction today and an overview of what it is that we've just read. Uh, There's a dominant theme to Psalm 145. Did you catch it? Praise, right? Um, Praise from beginning to end. It's even in the title, correct? And then you see it mentioned again at the end. And so it kind of serves as this bookend. And then you have all these additional terms and words that tie that theme together from beginning to end. And so part of what I want to do as an introduction is to continue to make sure we give thoughtful consideration to what do we mean when we use this word praise. Now we gave some thought to that last week, but we did so more from the perspective of the New Testament, calling to mind some of the different examples that we see in the New Testament scriptures. But what do we see when we look at it from an Old Testament perspective? One of the things that you see with this particular word when it's, when it's offered up in Hebrew is that it's attached to a particular posture, right? there's, there's actually a connection to the root word that also is used for the word to kneel. And that's a really interesting picture that I want us to have in mind, but it makes sense, right? Because when you kneel before someone or something, you're doing this to convey a message of humility or worship, right? And think about the opening line, right? I give you praise to my God, my King. Right, that's how we're referring to God in this particular psalm. What do you do before a king? You kneel. It's acknowledging the sovereignty, acknowledging the excellencies of this king that that demands our worship, demands our devotion. And so you have this posture of praise that is is associated with kneeling. And so throughout this psalm you have all these different words that also kind of complement our understanding of what praise really means. So one of the words that I want us to to call to mind in these first seven verses today is this word extol. I love the way that this complements the idea of praise. So extol is the same concept of praise, but here there's a specific nuance that also speaks to having confidence. Confidence in who God is, an assurance, a belief, right? And that confidence, that praise is to be expressed through joy, through delight. And so when we talk about extolling our God, when you talk about extolling our King, what we're talking about is that we have this confidence, we have this belief, we have this assurance that leads towards a joyful disposition. And I love that picture. Because part of what we need to embrace when we come in here and seek to praise someone is we need to see that, that God is not just some concept. We're not coming in here just to adhere to some ritual. We extol Him for who He is. And praise is not contingent upon just believing God's going to do what I want him to do for me, but that I'm actually going to trust, I'm going to believe, I'm going to have confidence in the what he wants to do is actually good for me, even if I don't see it. And I love that picture. And so an opening question, whenever you open up a psalm like Psalm 145, is Is my life reflective of praise? Do I truly demonstrate this sort of confidence? Do I truly carry myself in this sort of posture so so if we were to say there's an absence of joy in our life right if there's an absence of praise a lot of that means that, that there's an absence of joy and that absence of joy often stems from the fact that maybe we don't have the confidence and the belief in God that we should right to truly trust in these promises right doesn't mean that life is going to be easy but it does mean that no matter the season or circumstance we can trust him and still find reason to be joyful. Now the other thing that you see carry yourself through this psalm or carry us through this psalm is that most of these calls to praise are offered in plural. Right? So it's not really just designed for us to read it and think of it from an individual viewpoint. This isn't just your own personal practice. This is a call to a congregation. It's a call to a community. And I love that picture for us as a church. Right, that I want us to be a church that's known for its confidence in who God is. Right, that we come here as, as a people, as brothers and sisters. Trying to make it on their own.
1: Maybe stop by leaving your parents home. But maybe we're just wrong. Ha, 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 ha. Criticism isn't easy for their Everything. See, they grew up with undeserved confidence because they got trophies just for participating. M.I.L.
0: So talented, right? So good. So I, I share it with you, number one, because I think it really highlights our tendency to stereotype generations, right? And we, we do it all. Uh, it doesn't matter. We stereotype any generation we're not a part of. And if it's the one we're not a part of, it's typically negative stereotypes. But if it's ours, it's positive stereotypes. And so you can kind of see that in that video. But I also love the progression, right? Because the progression is we have these stereotypes and then we realize, hey, there's going to be a moment where we pass the torch, and this generation is going to be in charge. And so actually we need to move beyond stereotypes and we need to love and we need to pray for these generations. And, and I love that message and that's kind of a theme that I want us to use to really explore how do we live out Psalm 145 verse 4. And, and so think of it this way. Um, you, you think about these stereotypes and the reason that they emerge is because we have these shared spaces now. In all these different generations we've highlighted we have shared spaces in our homes, we have shared spaces in our workplaces, in our church. And, and all of a sudden, we see these differences, and, and we see conflict, we see tension, and so we develop these stereotypes, and we begin to realize, man, it's not as easy to connect and relate from one generation to another as I maybe thought. And so where does this conflict come from? If we're really going to be able to live out Psalm 145 verse 4, we have to first address, how do I deal with this tension and some of these gaps that we feel between these generations? And so I've thought long and hard, like, how do we How do we work through that how do we diagnose that and and this is what I see subconsciously I don't even know that we we practically do this but but here's what I see is that there's not really a generational issue there's a human issue right and the human issue is that we don't really like to have anything in life remind us of our own frailty right it's just instinctive anything that reminds me that my life is fragile I want to avoid so disease Um, stories of of tragedy or wrecks, war, anything that that tells me my existence can be threatened, I don't want to encounter that. So I'm going to do everything I can to build a life that is safe, that is secure, that is healthy, so I don't have to be reminded of the frailty of my existence. But there's one factor to our existence that we cannot stop, that consistently compels us to be reminded of our frailty, age. And it's not just getting older, it's even when we're young. Right, because even in infancy or in early childhood, what do we see? We see that we need help. Right? That we're frail, that we're fragile, that we need someone else to care for us, someone else to feed us, someone else to protect us. And so we we live those early stages of our existence, getting used to this, but then eventually we get to a certain stage where we go, man, I'm tired of that. I I want this treasured autonomy that I sense out there. I I want that self-sufficiency. I want to be able to make my own decisions protect myself, I want to be, I want to be there, and so we begin to reach for that, and then we finally reach that stage, and their life feels as if it's the most full, right, because now I'm strong, I'm healthy, I'm, I'm, I'm sharp intellectually, I'm reaching uh, new milestones in my career, I have a level of influence, I have a level of maturity, and this makes frailty seem very distant. And here I have control, here I have power, here I have something that continually affirms my importance and my relevance, and so this is where we want to stay. And then all of a sudden, we start looking, and younger folks are joining us in this autonomy. And they start reaching for that same torch. And we look at them, and we go, well, now wait a second, you think differently, you act differently differently. You, you approach things differently. I think one of the things we would all admit and acknowledge pretty quickly is that our culture in particular is obsessed with generations in a lot of different ways, correct? Now, part of this discussion, most of this discussion is going to be unique to uh, a Western American context, okay? Now, you have generations in other parts of the world, obviously, but how they're defined and how they're labeled are going to vary. But you see an obsession with generations in our culture. You can go home and find article after article, News story after news story about all the different generations that kind of comprise our nation at this point in time. And, and so here's what I want to do is I want to define them for a moment so we can talk about them for a second. And, and that even of itself is a little tricky because different sources define them slightly differently. Every generation is going to have a title, and then they're going to have a date range for which people were born. If you were born from this year to this year, you belong in this generation. But different, different organizations. And so I went with Pew Research, okay, wrote them, or or define them in different ways. And so I had to settle on one, and so I went with Pew Research, okay, and so more or less they all agree with each other, but they may vary in terms of their title, they may vary in their date range. And so I'm going to call out this generation. If you belong to this generation, I want you to raise your hand, okay, if you're comfortable with that. If you don't want to acknowledge which generation, that's fine. That's part. You'd want to by the end of the sermon, all right, so just embrace it. So, first of all, the first generation that I ever really kind of became aware of is the greatest generation, uh, 1910 to 1927. If you were born in 1910, 1927, and you're part of the greatest generation, raise your hand. There we go. We have a couple down here up front. Awesome. Following that, the silent generation born from 1928 to 1945. Raise your hand if you're part of the silent generation. Got some hands. Then the boomers, 1946, 1964. Let me see you boomers. All right. And then we have Gen X, 1965, 1980, Gen Xers, raise your hand. Okay. Millennials, born from 1981, 1996, that's the millennials in here. And then Generation Z, 1997 to 2012, raise your hands. How about that? Right? (laughs) I see parents going, raise your hand, right? I'm drawing, you know. How cool is it? We got all these generations in this church. It's awesome, and I love that diverse representation. We're going to highlight some of that a little bit later. So what do you have whenever you start talking about generations? Is ultimately, when we start talking about generations in this culture, we all settle on these stereotypes, right? You have these labels, and and then you begin to kind of define what each generation brings, their unique perspective to the world, their unique perspective to work, or whatever. And so I was trying to think of a, a simple way to convey some of those stereotypes. We have one picture that kind of initially introduces this. This is kind of from the workplace environment and you can kind of see the progression. Write me, call me, email me, text me. You can see the clothes that even kind of change, the accessories move from a briefcase to a backpack, although I will say Jason Simon was trying to bring the briefcase back. He is bringing it back. I don't know about that, but but you can see different forms of communication, different forms of dress, different approach, right, different places and different approaches to the workplace. Now Every generation carries its stereotypes, but if there's one generation that's receiving the brunt of all the stereotypes right now, it's millennials, right? And the reason is, we're the largest, thank you very much, we worked really hard to achieve that, um, but we're also coming of age, and so we're kind of entering into uh, this peak moment of our generation, and so it's, it's creating kind of this magnifying glass of attention. And so, uh, I have a video that I want to show you that's going to highlight the stereotypes. Now, I'm a millennial, and so we're just going to roll with it. It's all fun. And and it's and the reason I'm showing this video is cuz it actually helps create an arc of where I want to go for the rest of the message, okay? But let's have fun for a little bit about 3 minutes. You probably saw this a couple years ago, but I think it's appropriate. Let's let's watch this video for some of these stereotypes.
1: ding ticka, ding, ticka, ding 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 There he sits inside your local coffee shop, sporting a man burning facial hair. Somehow he believes, although he has no job, that by his 30s he will be a millionaire. M-I-L- To change the world while wearing yoga pants, armed with her dreams and knowledge of essential oils. M I L L E N I A L. Gotta love millennials. M I L L E N I A L. Gotta love millennials. Twenty-seven years old, trying to. Criticism isn't easy for their ears. They feel like they know most everything. See, they grew up with undeserved confidence, cause they got trophies just for participating. M I L E N I A, help, God, love millennials. M I L L E N M I A, help, please pray for millennials.
0: So good. So talented, right? So good. So I, I share it with you, number one, because I think it really highlights our tendency to stereotype generations, right? And we, we do it all. Uh, it doesn't matter. We stereotype any generation we're not a part of. And if it's the one we're not a part of, it's typically negative stereotypes. But if it's ours, it's positive stereotypes. And so you can kind of see that in that video. But I also love the progression, right? Because the progression is we have these stereotypes, and then we realize, hey, there's going to be a moment where we pass a torch, and this generation is going to be in charge. And so actually we need to move beyond stereotypes and we need to love and we need to pray for these generations. And, and I love that message and that's kind of a theme that I want us to use to really explore how do we live out Psalm 145 verse 4. And, and so think of it this way. Um, you, you think about these stereotypes and the reason that they emerge is because we have these shared spaces now. In all these different generations we've highlighted we have shared spaces in our homes, we have shared spaces in our workplaces, in our church. And, and all of a sudden, we see these differences. And, and we see conflict. We see tension. And so we develop these stereotypes. And we begin to realize man, it's not as easy to connect and relate from one generation to another as I maybe thought. And so, where does this conflict come from? If we're really gonna be able to live out Psalm 145, verse 4, we have to first address how do I deal with this tension and some of these gaps that we feel between these generations? And so I've thought long and hard like, how do we? How do we work through that? How do we diagnose that? And, and this is what I see subconsciously. I don't even know that we, we practically do this, but, but here's what I see is that there's not really a generational issue, there's a human issue, right? And the human issue is that we don't really like to have anything in life remind us of our own frailty, right? It's just instinctive. Anything that reminds me that my life is fragile, I want to avoid, so disease, Um, stories of of tragedy or wrecks, war, anything that that tells me my existence can be threatened, I don't want to encounter that. So I'm going to do everything I can to build a life that is safe, that is secure, that is healthy, so I don't have to be reminded of the frailty of my existence. But there's one factor to our existence that we cannot stop, that consistently compels us to be reminded of our frailty, age. And it's not just getting older, it's even when we're young. Right, because even in infancy or in early childhood, what do we see? We see that we need help. Right? That we're frail, that we're fragile, that we need someone else to care for us, someone else to feed us, someone else to protect us. And so we we live those early stages of our existence, getting used to this, but then eventually we get to a certain stage where we go, man, I'm tired of that. I I want this treasured autonomy that I sense out there. I I want that self-sufficiency. I want to be able to make my own decisions. Protect myself. I want, to be, I want to be there. And so we begin to reach for that. And then we finally reach that stage. And there, life feels as if it's the most full. Right? Because now I'm strong. I'm healthy. I'm, I'm, I'm sharp intellectually. I'm reaching uh, new milestones in my career. I have a level of influence. I have a level of maturity. And this makes frailty seem very distant. And here I have control. Here I have power. Here I have something that continually affirms my importance and my relevance. And so this is where we want to stay. And then all of a sudden, we start looking and younger folks are joining us in this autonomy. And they start reaching for that same torch. And we look at them and we go, well, now wait a second. You think differently. You act differently. You, you approach things differently. And so if I'm going to have to hand this torch off, I don't know that I want to hand it To you and the other reason I don't really want to hand it over is because I know it's on the other side It means i'm getting to a place where i'm not as strong Not as healthy not as sharp and my voice begins to seem to be diminishing in its importance Which means i'm closer to the end And frailty is much more of a reality over here. So i'm gonna do everything I can To grab hold of it and stay right here And it creates this tension now society adds to it that's the human condition. Here's what society does. Society, in particular for us, loves and celebrates youth and diminishes the elderly in a lot of different ways. Right? And, it's, and I'm not talking about just with a broad stroke. I know there are always exceptions, but think about it. Think about how we celebrate youth. One is by appearance. Think about how desperately we seek to look like we belong in that season of life with that treasured autonomy. When we're young, we try to look older. So we dress a certain way, can't wait to put on makeup or have different trends and demonstrate, look at how mature I am and get that information. And then we begin to get on the other side of it and we try to look younger. $16.5 billion a year on cosmetic surgery because we want to resist looking older. You ever looked at those pictures of 50 now versus what the age 50 looked like back then? It's amazing how much we try to continue to look younger because our society values youth. Think about how we idolize it in so many ways. Constantly highlighting what young children can do. It's not enough to have American Ninja Warrior. We need American Ninja Warrior Jr. Right? We, we need not just the voice, the voice Jr., chopped Jr., over and over again. And we just marvel. Look at that. They're only 13. Wow. And so now we start parenting that way. Right? We, we start forcing our children to grow up because we want them to have this significance. We want them to have this influence. And so we have children now that have numerous sports year-round, numerous activities year-round, numerous instruments year-round, all while they can achieve academic success, social success, and they're not even 10. And we just try to force them into this adulthood. And the thing about how we feel about the other end of the spectrum, aging. It's interesting to think about, in fact, Uh, it's really uh, prolific, or I guess what's the word I'm looking for? It's really noticeable as a former missions pastor, and traveling to different cultures, and seeing how the elderly are viewed, and how different it is here. Uh, One of uh, the missions classes I was in several years ago, there was a guest speaker that came in, and she talked about her own experiences with that, and she said, you know, one of the hardest things to explain to people of another culture is nursing homes. And and I want to be Uh, sensitive to this, I fully acknowledge that there are many situations and scenarios where that's necessary and good and better for people to receive that care. This is in no way an indictment on some of those choices. And many people choose that for themselves. But it still makes a statement about our culture. Because in many other cultures, when you reach that age, you, you stay with the family. You stay in the home. You're still a valuable and integral voice. And in many respects, we see an aging population seclude to themselves, wondering, who cares what I have to say? And so, of course, we try to cling to that middle dynamic, that treasured voice of autonomy. And all of a sudden, we have this, this tension that exists between these generations, because only so many people can hold that, cho- that torch of control and change and influence at one point in time. Now, you add another level of complexity when you start thinking about world events, technology. Because now we go through these cycles of life and we have different experiences. Absolutely. You go through the Great Depression and a world war, I have no clue what that's like. Zero. To know what you have to do to overcome, what you had to, and how that's going to shape your understanding of life, of country, of family. No clue. You think about people that endured the reality of possibly being drafted. You think about growing up with terrorism. Think about our young children now that are not just growing up with fire drills, but lockdown drills. You think that's not shaping their worldview? Think about technology. I can sit down with somebody in our youth department and say, yeah, I know what it's like to be a teenager. I I was in high school once. I have zero clue what it's like to go through high school with a device in my pocket where I'm constantly curating some sort of social persona that is constantly critiqued 24-7 through likes and comments. No clue what that's like. And so we all have these different perceptions, which is what brings us to this moment of conflict where we say, well, I don't, you don't see the world like I see it. And so it's way harder to connect meaningfully amongst generations than what we often consider. And, and the problem is that it's not just confined to society. Right? We see it in church. Now, here I'm talking about American Christianity. I'm not talking about our church. I'm going to brag on our church here in a little bit. But, but here's what you see in American Christianity. As a result of this tension and this conflict, we have a lot of homogenous churches. Right? Not just homogenous in terms of, of race and ethnicity or in socioeconomic status, but generationally. And why is that? Well, think about how we often structure our churches. Some churches, uh, it starts very early, and we just put children in childcare, And we remove them from worship. And we remove them from ministry. One of the most consistent questions you get asked when you're on staff is, is there going to be child care? And in some situations, again, yes, we need it. Absolutely. Right? But, case in point. um, Sorry, I had to. (laughs) I love you, Ashley. I love you, Shep. I had to. (laughs) It's perfect. Sometimes you need it. Right? But, there's an extreme. Because sometimes what we're saying behind that question is, my children can't hear what I need to hear. They can't sing what I need to sing. They can't go do what I need to do. Can someone else babysit? And so churches take that mentality, and they start to create these unique life stage worship services. And so we have like a children's church. And then we'll have a a specific youth service, and then we'll have a specific college service. And then you know what happens? Children grow up, and they either go into college or they graduate from college, and they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to walk away completely they're gonna say man my whole life i've been told this isn't for me and i'm finally free to make my own decision or you know what they're gonna do they're gonna go find a church that is just their peers because their whole life they've been said this isn't for intergenerational dynamics and they go find churches and that's why you have churches that are all the same generation right and they have this homogenous feel you know the other reason we choose homogeneous churches they're so easy they are so much easier. You can, you know how easy it is to do ministry when you find people that look like you, talk like you, think like you, want what you want, do what you want? They are so affirming. <laughs> it's a great environment. Intergenerational churches are hard. So some churches try it. But you know what happens there? Is, is we try it, but we still divide under one roof. And we don't always become intergenerational. Again, I don't see this here, but I see it in other churches. And so what happens is, we come in and now church becomes a shared space of all this tension of just different generations and we come with these different perspectives these different preferences and we say well i want my service to look like this i want my worship to look like this i want my music to feel like this i want to do small groups i want to do sunday school and finally churches go okay you can have yours you can have yours so we'll have a contemporary service we'll have a traditional service we'll have sunday school we'll have small groups and we divide we share the same address but we divide and very rarely we actually coming together, declaring the wonders of God from one generation to another. So you know what we need? We need a biblical framework of how to live out Psalm 145, verse 4. A couple of reminders. Number one, over and over again, we see youth valued in the scripture. It could be Samuel, it could be Esther, it could be Jeremiah, Joel, Daniel, Mary. How many times we see these people have visions in their youth is what the scripture say. And we see amazing things happen through the life of young people. Joseph was 17. They're around 17 when he was betrayed by his brothers and sold. You think he didn't understand hardship? You think he didn't understand betrayal? First hand lesson at the age of 17. By the age of 20, David was a king and had killed a lion and a bear. I'm 37. I hadn't done any of that. Hey, Solomon saw assumed the throne probably around 16. Josiah at 8. So how dare we ever presume that God can't speak and move through the youth, right? As we've said before, they're not the church of tomorrow, they're the church of today. And then think about the elderly. How many times we see the value of wisdom, the proverb that speaks about how gray hair is the splendor to the aged, over and over again, to honor your father and your mother, to care for the widow who's often typically older than you. And then even the formation of the church, Acts 14, Titus 1, they go and they start the church, and what do they do? They appoint elders. And yes, that has something to do with church governance, but you know what elder means? Old. There's, there's wisdom there. Hey, we're going to entrust this leadership to people who have a certain life experience. So the Bible affirms both. There's not a preferred season Of life. Look at Timothy, probably my favorite example. So, where does Timothy learn his faith? His mother and his grandmother. Multi generational. And then he comes of age, and Paul is teaching him, giving him instructions. And then in chapter three, he says, Hey, these are the instructions you need to pass on to God's household here. I'm entrusting you with this leadership. So, guess what? Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Set an example. Life, speech, purity. And it's almost as if Paul can anticipate the conflict and the challenges. And so, in chapter five, you know what he tells him? He says, Listen, Don't rebuke an older man harshly, exhort him as if he were your father, older women as if your mother, the other young men and young women as brothers and sisters, and the point, the biblical framework is we are family. Everyone has a voice, and the church should be one of the best places for one generation to declare another his mighty works. That's what I love about this church. And you see it. You saw it today. It's baby dedication, right? What I love about this dedication is here we have this moment where we're not just bringing parents up and saying, hey, good luck. We're praying for you. What do we say? We say, hey, teachers, staff, congregation, this is our responsibility to declare from one generation to the next what God has done. We see it not just in special services. There's a reason we have our children in worship. There's a reason every week we bring them up here and sit them down and we talk to them because they matter. And we want them to see mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and brother and sister, we want them to see the family of Christ worshiping together. We want them to know what that looks like. And so you know what that means? Yes, that means that there are certain Sundays where moms will walk out of here and dads will walk out of here and have no clue what was said in the sermon because they were corralling these little minions all around them. And that means there are going to be some Sundays where you're sitting next to a family like that and you're distracted. And I'm okay with it because they need to be here because they matter. It's why we do things like Wednesday night and KMA. It's why they come up here and lead us in worship. It's why we do VBS because our call is to declare from one generation to the next the mighty works of our God. And it's not just about our children. It's all of us. Right? It's about every generation creating those spaces. And you heard Caroline mention it. We do this throughout the year. Now, yes, when we gather together in a Sunday Connect fashion, it's typically defined by life stage. And there's nothing wrong with that, as long as it's not the only time we gather together. And so throughout the year, what do we do? We have these intergenerational classes because we believe something amazing can happen when we all sit together and read the same scripture and you hear a perspective from somebody that's lived a much longer life than you. Or when you hear somebody that's lived a much shorter life than you and has a certain optimism or energy or whatever it is. But when we all come together and declare what God has done, something amazing happens. We serve alongside one another. It's not just about studying the scripture. It's not about just coming into worship and singing. We go to Guatemala. We go to the mission house. We we go to the community. We go wherever it is that God's leading. And every place where you serve should give you an opportunity to rub up against shoulders of somebody that's of a different generation. And all of that should spill over into our homes. Shouldn't just be here. So it should be in our families. Parents, pour into your children. Tell them what God has done. Children, listen to your parents. Tell them what God is doing in your life. Call a relative. Call a friend. Bring it into your home. We don't do these things praise dramatically. We do them so that they create on-ramps to meaningful relationships so that one generation can declare to another the mighty works of God. And when that happens, we see tremendous expression of praise. Let me close with this, okay? An application and then just a quick reminder. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Here's what's cool about Psalm 145. Psalm 145 ultimately in the custom of Judaic life was read three times a day. It was believed that if you recited Psalm 145 three times a day, then you belonged in the world that was to come. And so they would do it twice in the morning and once in the evening. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you not necessarily to recite Psalm 145, but three times a day, declare praise. And those final words, you have this word proclaim, and that means to actually count. Imagine if you took some time this month and wrote out all the different ways you've seen God work in your life, and you actually counted them. What kind of list would that look like? And and then this word is complemented with the word celebrate. And that word means to to pour forth. It actually means to speak profusely. So if we had this list and we counted the records of of rights that God has done for us and all these ways that we've seen his work in our life, we had this list and we couldn't help but speak of it. Man, three times a day for us to gather together with somebody of a different generation and say, let me tell you what God has done. Do it in your homes. Do it with friends. That's what I'm going to challenge you. You get extra credit if you actually do Psalm 145 three times a day. But at the very least, gather together and declare from one generation to the next what God has done. And that's where I want to leave us. That's the word of admonition. Let me remind you again what this looks like. It's not just gathering together and trying to persuade someone to your point of view. Well, here's how we see it, and here's why. Here's what I think is right. No, our focus is on Christ. Our focus is on his rescue. Our focus is on this gospel, stories that point us to the promises of God so that we can all declare from one generation to the next, yes, he is faithful. We come together and we speak of his glorious splendor. We have stories of his majesty. We meditate on his wonderful works. We come from one generation to the next and we tell of his power we proclaim his great deeds, we celebrate his abundant goodness, and we joyfully sing of his righteousness. And if we start doing that, then we will be a church that has that confidence that comes in a posture of humility and joy and truly begins to see the benefit of being able to be a church where one generation declares to another the wonders of our God. We'll be a church that knows what it means to praise God from all generations. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you and we're grateful for the ways in which you lead us, the ways in which you guide us. We thank you for every generation that represents itself in this room. We acknowledge, God, that there are so many obstacles that we often face that prevent us from truly engaging in a meaningful way, in a personable way. And so we pray that you would help us through those obstacles and help us continue to truly just listen to each other. But more than that, Father, to, to call to our attention, to call to our mind the many ways that you save us and that you would pour out within us our desire to declare from other generations and to other generations what you are doing and what you have done. And Father, let that be uh, the, the, the seed. Father, let that be the soil that permeates this congregation and allows us to be a church that truly gives you the praise that you deserve, that we're a people that would exalt you and extol you in all situations and in all seasons. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to offer a quick word of invitation, as is often the case.